Hi, I'm Sian Xiao, a healthcare researcher. And I'm Sammy Winemaker, a palliative care doctor. If you or someone you know is facing a serious illness, you've probably spent many hours in waiting rooms, scared and not sure what to expect. We can help. Together, we've heard from thousands of patients and families dealing with serious illness. Our goal is to share what we've learned so you can be more prepared and in control. This is the Waiting Room Revolution, and it starts right now. Okay, welcome back. It's Sien and Sammy again. This episode, we're going to focus on the key called Anticipate Ripple Effects, which is about preparing for the family's parallel journey. And we use the metaphor of the ripple effects because often people think it's all about the patient and they're so focused on the needs of the patient, not necessarily paying attention to the ripple effects that happen and everyone else who's affected, like the family, the caregivers, the community that's connected to the patient. When we refer to a ripple effect, what we're referring to is that a person who is diagnosed with a, an illness will have an experience, him or herself, but the people around that person will also have experiences. They'll have experiences directly related to the patient's illness journey, but they will all have their own individual experiences. And the ripple effect will be on their family members, uh, their neighbors, the people that live close by to them, the people that love them, uh, the people that work with them professionally. So we wanted to really acknowledge that this ripple effect gets wider and wider and wider. But I think in this episode, what we really wanted to do was acknowledge that eventually in this whole story, one or two or three people will bubble up and be deemed the caregivers or the carers. And those people are usually uh, serendipitously bestowed the role based on the circumstances. And those caregivers will become instrumental in this person's illness experience. Yeah, people assume it's all about the patient. And I hear this all the time that people will say, oh, I would have done anything for my sick wife or, you know, it was their it was their wish. So it's my job to fulfill it. And, you know, this shows up. People quit their jobs. They put their life on hold for the sick patient. And I totally get that as a person who's part of a big family. I completely understand the desire to rally around a person. But I think the key and why this is so important is we want to emphasize that you also have to pay attention that you're not just a support if you're the family. You are an integral member of the team. And if you're not aware that there's going to be a parallel journey for you, then you might be at higher risk of burning out, of you know having anxiety, depression, having all kinds of different poor outcomes. And you're just going to be affected. And you have to take care of yourself. And you're going to have to do things to prepare just as much as the patient is as well. The usual situation is when a person is diagnosed with a serious illness, uh, they become the star of this illness experience. Um, they become the star in the eyes of the family and also the star in the eyes of the healthcare system. We really almost overly focus exclusively on the patient and forget that these other people are involved. The crew or the caregivers or this inner circle we're talking about, will have an illness experience that 
runs in parallel to the patient's illness experience, but they will also have their own personal, professional, emotional experience as well that is separate from the patient's. If we solely focus on the patient in this whole story, then we are missing important characters who will have their own needs that go unmet. And we will also overlook them as important intel for what the actual patient needs. I was just going to say, like research shows that uh, 85% of people's care is outside a hospital, outside the healthcare system, and is taken care of by the inform- a patient's informal inner crew. So there really is a lot of role and work for the, you know, quote unquote, family around the patient. And you can't neglect that in an illness story. It's true. When you think about how many hours in a week a patient will interface with the formal healthcare providers, it's minuscule in comparison to the time that they spend with their family, community, and inner crew. Part of the reason why people don't proactively think of that is they're not allowing, they're not using a label. They think of themselves as, I'm the husband, I'm the, uh, the wife, I'm the son. Of course, I would do this for my father and my, my partner. But there is a, a word for this, and we call it, you know, the inner crew, but it's called caregiving or being a carer. And if you don't Google those words, you're not going to find those resources. So we're saying this is a real job that you might have, you know, signed up for without knowing it. You might have gotten it. And there are things out there, but if you're not actively looking for it and using those words, you may not find it until it's too late. You know, we secretly in healthcare call them the caregivers and the carers, but, you know, they didn't interview for that position. They didn't negotiate that position. It didn't come with a job description, but they got the job. And so they may not realize that that job entails the fact that they are going to be the eyes and ears on the patient for all the hours that they're not involved in formal health care, they are likely going to become the managers of that person's illness experience along with their own experience. They become this informal care team with no formal training how to take care of someone. They become the first responders when, you know, a crisis happens. Many caregivers take on this role without really thinking of the many, many ways that it's going to affect their life. And yeah, they often wish for this idea of a of a guidebook or something to tell them. It's like the what to expect when you're going to be a caregiver book. And part of the reason why they are not finding that is because they didn't identify themselves as a care or a caregiver and look for those materials. They don't think of it as a job with a job description and training required, but it really is. It's very unusual for a patient to be able to journey through their illness by themselves. Commonly, there are people in their life that are drawn into the illness experience because of the proximity of who they are in in that person's life. And at the beginning, usually this is a supportive role, which doesn't have many tasks associated with it. But this caregiver role changes over time. Most people do not know what they're in for when they find themselves in a position of being a person's caregiver or an important person in their illness experience. And these people are in this role without a roadmap, without an instruction book or a guide. This idea is, it's sort of like training for a marathon. 
I mean, people don't just wake up one morning and start running the New York City Marathon. I mean, you decide for yourself, it's a, and you look and you train and you have a support system around you to help you practice and eat well and you prepare yourself mentally, physically, spiritually to do this. And you have to know what kind of marathon you're running. Is it a half marathon, a full marathon? Is it an Ironman where you're swimming and biking involved? I mean, depending on the kind of illness, it can be a very long journey. And so I think if you're taking on this task without realizing what you've signed up for, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure or for the risk of burning out. As the story of the illness unfolds, the potential is that the caregivers will uh, begin to become unwell uh, quietly in the shadows of the patient's illness. And then what can happen is we end up almost with a two for one. We have multiple ill people in one illness experience. And the truth is, is if the caregivers go down, the whole house of cards will crumble. So we really do have to be mindful of the fact that the caregivers or this inner crew that's, you know, supporting the patient who's going through the illness, they're just as important as the patient him or herself. And they deserve proper attention from the family and also from the healthcare system. So they truly are, as I mentioned, a unit of care. They should be considered as one. So is is there a roadmap for them? I mean, what advice do we have for them to to learn more, to get prepared, to be more aware of this job description, to train for this marathon? Well, we've mentioned in previous episodes how important it is for the patient to know that they're invited to know more about the big picture of the illness. It's pretty important that the caregivers also have a general idea of what the illness is going to look like and how the person that they love is going to be affected by the illness over time. But it's also important for the person who's the caregiver or the people that are caregiving to know what the caregiver experience is going to be like. And that's a little bit more difficult to flesh out because there is no guide for every illness out there that describes the big picture of caregiving. One of the best things that um, I've seen in my years of research is this idea of sort of a checklist to see if, you know, how prepared you are to be, to take on this role as primary caregiver, so to speak. But also then as the disease changes, as someone's, you know, gets more frail or their their physical function weakens, um, that has an effect on the different tasks that you're going to have to take on if you're the family who wants to be involved. And so there's sort of this idea of a checklist, you know, there's personal care tasks, there's household chores and housework. There's the transportation role. There's the care coordination and medication role. And then there's the financial and legal things that have to come along with any illness. And sort of putting the name beside who is the person who's most equipped to manage that. And if your name as the family caregiver is beside all of those, then you might be at high risk of burning out. And so it's really looking at what am I, you know, really good at? Who can I ask for help? And then being willing to ask for help or accept help when people ask. There's lots of activity that involve the healthcare team that's directly related to the patient. But it's also important for the caregivers to know that they should check in with their own healthcare providers as well about the experience that they're going through. 
and that they shouldn't feel guilty to ask for help and to talk about their own needs, to care for their own health needs, and to take time for themselves. And that ties into our our idea of activate your village, right? And thinking of who around you can help, being willing to ask for help, to accept help if it's offered, and maybe even pay for help if that's an option for you. But that is all things that are going to need, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to care for someone who's sick. And if you think you can do it all on your own, we've seen it over and over. It gets very hard and people burn out and they have physical breakdowns. They have mental breakdowns. It's just, it's very challenging. It's a, it's a, depending on the illness and how long you're doing for, it can be a very tough journey. Fitting in the caregiver role to the multiple hats a person already wears, something has to give. Space needs to come from somewhere else. And so if people don't know what they've signed up for informally and try to just add on the caregiver role to what they're already doing, they can quickly become overwhelmed. That often results in having to consider how many other people in your life are you trying to care for simultaneously? And is there a way to, you know, rope in other people to help? Uh, It means that one may have to consider their professional role and can they still work full-time? Do they need to go part-time? Should they look into whether or not there is financial support for someone who's in a caregiver role, depending on where they're living in the world? All of these things are very important because space has to be made for the caregiver role. You can't just add it on to what you're already doing. And this is also a note for friends and family who care about that person. When you offer help, it's much more useful to be specific rather than, oh, if you need something, call me. It's much more useful to be specific and say, oh, you know, I can, you know, come over on this date and watch for two hours so you can go do something. So I'm going to do that. And or you could use that time to do X or Z, you know, which would be most helpful. That is going to be typically more helpful than just sort of an open invitation because people often don't take that and and, and are less willing to accept help because they don't really need know what they're going to need yet. This is really about being proactive. Uh, again, that is one of the major things we're trying to do to shift the usual situations, which tend to be very reactive and crisis driven to more proactive and coordinated and planned. And so part of that is knowing there is going to be a ripple effect, that other people are going to be affected by your illness, and there's going to be some key people in your life that are going to be very intimately involved in your illness experience and making sure that all of you are set up to know ahead of time what's coming what's coming with respect to the illness, what is that going to mean for me and the people in my life, and how to prepare for the twists and turns and and what's around every corner in advance. So knowing what the caregiver role is going to entail emotionally, financially, spiritually, instrumentally, all of these things are important to know ahead of time, Uh, not to scare and overwhelm people, but as an opportunity to stay ahead of the of the game. The the other point that we wanted to make was about this is about being proactive. And it's also about preventing burnout. And so you need to think about self care and think about strategies of how you're going to manage this you know, these burdens. Um, 
And it's a very big issue. And the metaphor we think about is if you're on an airplane and you've seen those where the, the masks come down, the oxygen masks come down, you're supposed to put your mask on first before you put it on the people around you. And it's the same kind of thing as a caregiver. If you don't put your mask on first and take care of your own well-being, if you burn out, it's like what Sammy said before, that house of, it's like a house of cards or it will have a huge effect on the patient. So it's really important. There's lots of information and resources out there, peer support groups, blogs, organizations in your community that can be either a support group or give information and advice of how you can feel not alone, tips and strategies, but also just the idea of taking time out for yourself and finding what things you can do to relieve stress and manage this very challenging situation. So when the patient is uh, the, the star of the show, a lot of times caregivers feel that they don't have permission to speak up for themselves and say what they need and often feel very guilty when they do start feeling like things are not going well for them or they're starting to feel burnt out. They can feel ashamed of, of the fact that they're not, you know, holding up to their caregiver role and they don't want to shine any of the light on themselves because of this feeling of guilt and shame. After all, they're not the one with the illness uh, their loved one is. So I, I can tell you from my own personal experience uh, caring for people that I am much less worried about caregivers that are able to just come out and say what they need. If they tell me, I honestly need a break from caregiving at least once a week. Uh, can you help me find someone who can come to the home an hour here or an hour there? Um, or people who are saying yes to their friends or their community members for things like meals or help in any way. Even though the situation might be very complicated in the home, I'm much less worried about those caregivers than the ones that stay very quiet and feel that they can do it all on their own, that they don't need any external help from home care or don't need any help from anyone in, in their personal lives. Those are the people that I have to watch very carefully because they're the ones that are at risk for burnout. And they're the ones that tend to feel very guilty and ashamed of speaking up about their own needs. So it is true that in an ideal world, caregivers would take care of themselves. Maybe it's just little sips of self-care along the storyline. You know, many times caregivers don't get a big break once in a while. They have to take small little breaks, whatever that is for the person, in order to sustain themselves in that role and be resilient to that role. Uh, now I'd like to bring in a guest, Isabel Sass. Isabel was a caregiver for her sister, Julie. Julie was a 30-year-old young woman, a single mother of a three-year-old Ava, when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer. Isabel ended up being her caregiver and living with her sister for seven years, including at the end of life. I met Isabel at a national meeting to develop a caregiver app, and I was moved by her story. And I thought it really represented this episode today. So welcome to the podcast, Isabel. Thank you for having me. This episode is focused on the idea of anticipating ripple effects and that the caregiver will go through a parallel journey. And I just wondered, Isabel, does this idea resonate with you? Absolutely. I had already started a journey of, of thinking about myself. 
before Julie was re-diagnosed. And that helped me to when I, I, I had like a little red flags when I was completely forgetting about myself. So, so, you know, that, that forces you to communicate and say, you know, listen, I, I need, I need a little break or we need to bring somebody else in the, 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 the circle or me, I call the, the spider web, you know, having different people for different sections of your daily life to help out communication becomes key. I, I think when you're a caregiver, you can't fully escape um, neglecting yourself in the sense that when somebody is ill and in bed and not being able to get up, you, you, like you can't put it on pause. When uh, when she was those months that we were in crisis and she, she wasn't able to be herself and I had to advocate for her, it wasn't the time to think about myself. We talk a bit about the invisible parallel journey for the caregiver. What were some of the ups and downs that you faced? People, I think, no matter what their age is, uh, if they're a kid, teenager, young adult, uh, elder, they don't, they won't let just anybody take care of them. As for my sister, even at the beginning, me taking care of her, it, it took her a lot of uh, putting down her ego because I'm the little sister. So she's used to be taking care of me. So when that those roles switched, it was it was really hard. And so I always say you can't become a caregiver overnight. You can't just arrive in somebody's household and say, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be right next to you and sleep in your bed and and, and clean you and do whatever needs to be done. You can't just say that. You have to have a trust and and to to be attentive. It's true. The caregiver plays such an important role. Like you said, they're an extension of the patient. Did you know what you were walking into? Did you feel prepared? For one thing, healthcare system does not prepare me. For my part, the doctors hardly even looked at me when I was next to her. I remember at the beginning, I, I used to see a psychologist with the, the doctors and uh, like or a social worker or some, somebody at the hospital for, that were there for the family. But honestly, it, it didn't prepare me to anything at all. It's just something that, well, for myself, I, I learned like to live with, with Julie. I mean, something that I'm trying to advocate is for the patient and the family to learn about palliative care and home care and end of life. And people are scared to, to talk about end of life. And even when you're in end of life, the doctors or the nurses or the social workers don't talk about it, you know? They whisper about it. And nobody prepares you or have like, you know, good discussions. We are not prepared. Yeah. We are not prepared. Mm -hmm. Because people aren't prepared to talk about death. And, and that's ultimately, that's what we need to be prepared for. Yeah, we hear that a lot about people being bestowed the role of caregiver and not knowing what they signed up for until it's too late. You touched on this before, but what was the most difficult role for you to take on? Being the day nurse and night nurse 
So the nurse role is, is you know, exactly pain management, anxiety management. Like you learn so much. So the nurse explained to me, like often people that cannot breathe anymore, like normally, like they get huge anxiety because of that, you know, it's so that's anxiety or else it's pain, like huge pain management and anxiety causes pain. Pain causes anxiety, so it's it's you're always playing with that, you know. Plus, organizing in and out of the house, trip to the hospital, making sure that you have food, making sure that she's gonna eat the food that she's gonna like it, uh, making sure you have enough fluids around, making sure you have enough enough oxygen around, making sure when you arrive to the hospital that there's gonna be a hospital chair, like stuff like that is it, just you have to be prepared. And yeah. of course, if you don't ask, you don't get. So you have to be ready to ask and to, to go through those doors and to climb the mountain. Can you tell us more about how you were able to manage all this? The role of managing, I always say I have a, I have a bachelor and a crisis manager. We, we had another crisis uh, in the family this summer and it's like, Okay, we Isabel, the crisis manager, one one oh one. So that's it's because when somebody's in the hospital and you need to that that spider web to be activated, you know, you you need to know who to talk to, when, uh, who can come, who cannot, and you know, just being a manager. So I'm a cook, so I'm used to working in team and I'm to leading. I have a good leadership. Uh, it's it's in my uh, my CV. So <laughs> being a sister was not one of those roles. At well, it, I was being the sister that I am, but I was I will always remember the last week of her life. The doctor when he told me, "Now you can just be her sister." That sentence, those words, is is still in me like gives me shivers because I I realized how you know that role of just being the little sister just stops. That was really powerful, Isabel. That idea of you know being the sister, it just stopped. We do hear that often that people said, I just wanted to be the wife. I just wanted to be the husband or the son or the daughter. But they just couldn't. They were just so busy with all the other roles they had. So that's a perfect segue into our other message about putting your mask on first. Looking back, what impact did being a caregiver have on you? I have to admit, I completely lost myself. Um, I think one of the reasons why I'm, I want to tell my story and, I, and I, 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 I thought I'm talking to you is to let other people know that that can happen. And after that, it takes time to recuperate. I've realized I recuperated for those years just like a few months ago. It took a good six months to recuperate from, from all of that. Because um, you don't realize how tired you are uh, mentally. And like we think that we have to move faster, but the, the best advice I would give anybody who's going to go through this is, is to take time afterwards, you know, to 
to let them, you have to let yourself heal. And everybody has their own method. Like, I won't tell you, oh, you have to, you know, go pamper yourself or, or are you, oh, you should take a break or, you know, like, it's not how it works. <laughs> it's, it's, you have to try to find a balance, I guess. Uh, it's just, you know, it's try to find your balance. There's no secret recipe and every case is going to be different. Um, but like, for sure, I neglected myself. For sure, a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent. Now I'm working on that and I'm working on healing right now. And, and that's, that's what she would have wanted. Isabel, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so let's wrap up this episode about anticipating ripple effects with some key take-home messages. The big one is that this ripple effect does exist. There's a ripple effect when someone is diagnosed with a serious illness on the people who are around them. Another message is that one or two people, or maybe more, will end up being more involved in the illness experience, and they have a right to know what the illness experience is going to look like and what the caregiver experience is going to look like before they're deep into it so that they have a chance to shift their activity to be more planned and proactive and calm instead of reactive and crisis-driven. So a take-home is for caregivers, train for the marathon or know the job description because you play an essential role in the patient journey and you will have a parallel journey that you should not ignore. We've learned that sharing the caregiver role in an ideal situation is probably most protective against burnout and that it takes a village to care for someone. So activate your village. And it's really important for caregivers to take care of themselves. And put your mask on first. Join us next week when we talk about Tag Your It, building on the idea of your family and their critical role, but also how important they are in the coordination of the care. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. For more information, visit us at waitingroomrevolution.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.